Hello, and welcome to In Person, brought to you by Bizabo. In each episode of In Person, we explore the world's most daring events and the people who make them happen. In case you and I haven't already met, I'm Brandon Raffleson. Earlier this year, we took In Person on the Road to Experiential Marketing Summit in Las Vegas. There, we set up our podcast studio on the event floor and met with several event marketing leaders. One of those leaders was John Hyman, Director of Experiential Marketing at Sprint. Sprint is one of the largest telecom companies in the U.S., and it's also one of the oldest. Tracing its lineage back to 1899, the company got its start in telegraphs and phone lines. Today, Sprint is largely known for its developments in the internet and the internet of things. This is to say that, like some of the other companies that we've featured on the show, Sprint has a long history of adaptation and change. Having been with the company for 32 years, John Hyman is no stranger to change. John has worked in a number of different roles throughout his career, including sales, product management, and most recently, experiential marketing. As the director of experiential at Sprint, John oversees programs around executive briefing centers, corporate events, sports and entertainment sponsorships, and consumer and B2B experiential initiatives. In this episode, we discussed how Sprint's event strategy has become more focused over the years and how John and his team are making complex technologies more accessible with immersive activations. We also discussed event ROI, empathy, and Fortnite. One final note, because this interview was recorded live on the event floor, you might occasionally notice a little bit of the event atmosphere creeping into the audio. Okay, let's get to it. Welcome to In Person. Today we are joined by John Hyman, the director at Sprint. John has been with the company for 32 years and has done a lot during his tenure there. John, welcome. Good to be here. Thanks, John. Um, so, as we mentioned, you've been at Sprint for a long time. And you've had the opportunity to see a number of different teams and roles from the sales side, more from the product side. And for about the last eight years or so, you've been on the event side. Right, more generally in marketing. And so I have uh, our corporate events group, which includes trade shows, our experiential initiatives, our executive briefing centers, and also sports marketing. Great. And one aspect of your role and what you're doing now that you've mentioned a lot is the executive briefing centers. Now, in the sort of realm of event marketing that I'm familiar with, it's not a, a phrase that I hear too often. Could you share with the audience a little bit about what an executive briefing center is and sort of how it plays into the larger event and marketing strategy? The executive briefing center is pretty common among tech companies, both in, in the U.S. and in uh, Europe, and also in Asia to a certain extent. And these are facilities that companies operate to bring their prospective customers and customers in, especially when they have an RFP for, in our case, telecom services. And so we have a, a full-time staff, including engineers, who work with the uh, customer and the account team to create an agenda. And it's a day of collaboration where we go through our product strategy, our roadmaps, we do demonstrations and talk about what the you know future of our networks will look like in our services. And so while it's not an event in the context of a large event where you have multiple customers in, we do treat it like an event. It's a customized event, customized agenda, and highly curated. 
And so, you know, we'll do hundreds of these kind of things. We like to do it in our briefing centers because we can control the environment. It's a very deep one-on-one session with the customers where we get to uh, build trust and help them ideally solve their uh, telecom needs. Definitely. So, I mean, speaking to you beforehand, one of the things you mentioned is that over the history of Sprint's event experiential and overall marketing plan, there's been a little bit of a shift. Uh, You used to be involved in many, many events, and you've been sort of streamlining down to a few events in in these executive briefing centers, having those really play a big part in the strategy. Could you tell us a little bit more about that transition? Sure. So, you know, 10, 12 years ago, we were going to 80 large events a year, you know, just like you know, everyone else, we had the various trade show booths that were warehoused and shipped around the country. And what we found is that those were becoming less and less effective. And instead, we moved our investments into executive briefing centers and other forums where we controlled the environment. We would bring the customer to us. We might have a, you know, a small group of customers in, might have a CIO forum where we bring you know, 50 CIOs in. But we found that that kind of, if you will, private invite-only trade show or event in a briefing center or in, in a form that we controlled was far more effective. It allowed us to build a much deeper bond with our prospects and customers. For sure. And I understand that, especially when you're dealing with some of the complex technologies that are involved with telecom and what Sprint is gearing up to launch soon, 5G, it can be very helpful to have these smaller more uh, intimate experiences to explain these technologies. Yes, absolutely. And, and especially with the case of 5G, all of the carriers are rolling out in phases. And so it's not ubiquitous and it won't be ubiquitous for a while. And so you go into the Las Vegas Convention Center, for example, you're not going to have 5G right away. Or we can go to a market where we do have 5G and we can do prototypes and demonstrations and illustrate what the benefits of the new technology will be. Sure. So... You uh, described that there are some pretty cool sorts of ways that you're educating people in person about these technologies, one of which uh, you mentioned was the Pong game. Could, could you explain that a bit? Yeah, so one of the things that we've learned, you know, having done this in briefing centers and also in other venues, is that sometimes the best way to teach someone or explain a technology that they may not be an engineer, may not understand, is by having some fun. You know, and we come from the telecom world, which is typically pretty buttoned up, engineer driven. And we've discovered that if we make something playful and make something hands on, very experiential, then it's easier to teach a broader array of people with different backgrounds. So one of the things that's really important about 5G is that it has super low latency, ultra low latency of 10 milliseconds or so compared to, say, a 100 millisecond delay on uh, 4G. And that's important because if you're going to do things like autonomous vehicles, you need to have near real-time control. And so a lot of people don't think about latency, and that's the time, you know, that you send a command from your device where it hits a server and comes back. Very important, uh, especially in IoT, Internet of Things. And so in order to explain that to people who weren't engineers, we built a Pong game. You remember the old Atari Pong games? And it was frustrating playing those games because the paddles controls we're always behind about a half a second. So, you know, it doesn't move, and then when it moves, uh, it goes too far, and then you pull it back, and it overcorrects. And so we made a paddle game where, where one of the controllers was 5G and the other was 4G. And so the 5G one gives you a lot more accurate control and in, in near real-time movement of the paddle, and the 4G guy is just frustrated. Yeah. 
So did you have a chance to play it? Oh, I've played it several times. And uh, how did you do? Well, I always grab the 5G uh, paddle <laughs> and I always win. Okay. Uh, yeah, the 4G just uh, can't compare. Just can't compete. <laughs> cool. So that's, that's a, I think, a really novel way of engaging people. And there, there are all sorts of ways that technology is becoming more of a part of how people do events. But I think that's, it just really epitomizes a bespoke way of explaining a concept to an audience. I know that when uh, Sprint does end up showcasing at trade shows, you've taken this similar bespoke approach to really trying to create something that's different than the average booth that you might see. Several years ago, we decided that we didn't want to replicate the same big booth that looked like a big telecom booth and do it over and over and over again. And we were at a point where we were doing fewer shows and instead of reinvesting in a new booth, we decided that we would just do a custom display exhibit every time. And we were able to justify that, if you will, because we took whatever elements we built and then we would take them back and install them somewhere else or use them again. But I'm not talking about the big towers and the desks and all the, you know, the various cabinetry and stuff like that. I'm, I'm talking about things that are very meaningful branded items or simulations or, or demonstrations. And so most recently at Mobile World Congress Americas in Los Angeles last September, we had an exhibit that was about 100 by 40 feet. We installed a 20-foot tall succulent wall and uh, lemon trees and a park bench and simulated a park. And it was very warm and inviting and something that no one had seen. And as you look around all the other exhibits, they were like every other telecom exhibit. And so we were able to attract a goodly number of people, probably one of the busiest booths at the show, because we had some things like that. And it was just very inviting. We had games that helped articulate what 5G will be and fun simulations. Sure. I understand there was some Fortnite there? A little bit of Fortnite. That's one of the things that's uh, unique about Sprint's version of 5G is that it will be a mobile 5G, truly mobile 5G. So you'll be able to uh, untether yourself from your home cable and play Fortnite or whatever game you want to play anywhere that you're in our 5G network. So if that's in a park, it's in a park. Great. And did you uh, play any Fortnite? I'm not a gamer. I tried to play, and very quickly it ended for me. Yeah, it's all in the building. It's yeah. just that quick building. That's a little tip. Next time. <laughs> uh, great. So, I mean, you, you mentioned this switch to a more custom experience and really going the extra mile when deciding to exhibit at trade shows. I know that there is an example that was pretty formative to you uh, a while back with uh, SGI. Do you mind sharing that story? Yeah, so years ago I was involved in a project at Sprint where we were helping filmmakers and that ecosystem work on, or network, uh, so that they could share animation files, for example, across long distances instead of shipping them. And so we would go to the same shows that, you know, the same suppliers, if you will, uh, who were early on in the animation world, like Silicon Graphics, SGI. And I was struck at this one show where I went, and there was this very long line queued up, and I thought, what in the world are they waiting to see? And I got closer, and I realized that they actually had a retail store selling SGI-branded stuff. And I thought, they have reached their brand, you know, pinnacle. That is nirvana when people will shell out $250 for a jacket with your, your brand on it. Because at the time, SGI was behind... Toy Story and show, uh, movies like that. And, and so 
it occurred to me that a, a trade show booth doesn't have to be just a trade show booth. You know, it can be an experience. And, and if someone's willing to come in and spend money on your logoed items and wear them around, that's, that's a pretty good thing. And so I started to think about exhibits differently than just show and tell. And I think one of the things that's really interesting about that story is the idea of there being a giant line at a trade show booth. It's often just such a challenge trying to get people to stop by, but in this particular case, they had a, a huge line. And I know when you speak of that ideal exhibiting experience, you, you mentioned that sort of like an amusement park feeling to it. Yeah, so some of the some of the companies that we work with to build briefing centers have backgrounds in children's museums and in building amusement parks, and they come at it from a different point of view. They come at it with the idea that you want to see the attraction, you want to build this uh, anticipation, and the way they build the amusement parks is that the ride you want to be on, you can't really get to right away. You have to work your way there, and that builds anticipation, and and then when you get there, there's always a queue, you know, to, so you always have to wait a little bit, and that builds positive anticipation, and so your experience is better. And so when I think about exhibiting, I want, or, or even experiential, if I'm in a mall or doing some consumer experiential, I want, you know, from 100 feet away, I want someone to go, what is that? I want to go see it, and, and I want to draw them in. And much like we did at Mobile World Congress with the 20-foot live succulent wall, you can't help but to want to go see that. And once they got there, we had different versions of AR and VR and other things where we could help them understand what 5G is all about. And so, and back to the Children's Museum, and then, you know, when they do get in there, I want them to want to grab something and touch it and, and experience it and get tactile. And, and so that's why I, I, we just think about exhibits a lot differently than your traditional device on a podium. So... It sounds like you're working with some pretty great agencies when it comes to these experiential activations. What do you look for when you're, when you're looking to work with a new agency or partner? I look for people who really understand and can put themselves in the point of view of who our customers will be. I want them to understand the journey and the whole experience. I want them to have background, you know, various backgrounds, like I mentioned, people who build amusement parks or uh, children's museums and, and things where they, they really understand the psychology behind the experience and they don't think about it simply as something that's clever or something that's flashy. And they also understand that if you build anticipation, you've got to deliver. You can't build anticipation and then have it be a dud. <laughs> No, that's, that's not very satisfying right. at all. And so they just, I guess they have empathy for the person who's going to go through the experience and they're smart enough to think through it. And I've had these agencies who have pitched these gimmicks that really ring kind of hollow, like they lure you in and then nothing. And so we look for agencies who know that you have to follow all the way through and deliver an experience. And you want that person, after they go through that experience, you know, to walk away not only with the positive experience and memory of the interaction with the brand, but you want them to go tell somebody else, I got to take you back here. You've got to see this. You've got to experience this. It's wonderful. Never seen anything like it before. And so agency folks who know that are the kind of people I like to work with. Now, I understand that when it comes to sourcing talent in general for your team, you have a sort of different way of, of looking at it as well. It's about looking past the what might be superficially on the resume and, and really 
looking into what someone might be able to bring to the table. Could you, could you share a little bit more about that mindset? I look for people who not only have an aptitude for the job that they're interested in, the job they're doing, but I want people to have a passion for it. And again, back to the idea of having empathy for the people that they interact with, because everybody on my team is customer facing, be it the you know CTO or CEO of a large Fortune 50 company or a consumer. I want them to have empathy for what that person is experiencing and I want them as the brand ambassador, so to speak, to be able to interact in such a way. I don't care what their background is. You know, I've worked with people who have acting backgrounds. I've worked with people who are coders, who are wonderful with customers and, and they're very passionate about it. And, and that's the best kind of display of your brand is to have somebody who is genuinely passionate and has empathy for the person they're talking to. I agree 100%. So when you describe working with your team members and your style of leading, how would you describe it? You know, I think years ago, I might have said that kind of servant leader. I don't know if that's still trending. <laughs> uh, but the idea that if you're able to hire people who have the aptitude and they have the passion, then the most important thing I can do is to create an environment where it's low risk for creativity and let people go, let them fly, give them all the runway they need and support them. And I kind of tongue-in-cheek tell my team that I only do a couple of important things a year. One is secure resources and budgets. Another is to protect them from uh, being derailed by uh, senior executives to go do other projects. And also to encourage them and help them learn and evolve and develop. I think of it more of a kind of a player-coach kind of environment. I don't mind rolling up my sleeves and busting a table or pushing a cart at all. And I think that's important as a leader that you don't sit back with your feet on the desk and delegate and then bark at people. So that type of uh, leadership style, it's something that I think is it's often associated with smaller, scrappier companies and startups. Sprint is this global uh, corporation. Do you find that leadership style is something that is rare? Uh, not, not, not in Sprint, but in just in general with larger organizations. Yeah, I, I think that kind of uh, command and control leadership style is still very prevalent. I see it in my company. I see it in other companies. The great thing about what we do at Sprint, even though it's a large company, we're a small department that is largely autonomous. And uh, so we deliver on behalf of other groups in the company, but I'm, I'm not part of a you know 1,200-person unit uh, where we have this hierarchy and instead we are more like an agency within the company. And so we're able to act differently. We're able to behave differently. And we're able to get resources even outside the company, other agencies, uh, who typically are small firms, small boutique firms that we love to work with. Got it. Makes sense. So I'd like to rewind a little bit and ask you, uh, how did you get involved with events and marketing in general? Well, you know, I... That's a good question. I came up through the company. I uh, started in sales and moved into product management, did some work in alliance management and strategic planning and stuff like that. And I always leaned in towards the marketing. It, it was drawing me. And so I tended to appreciate what my colleagues over in the marketing groups were doing. And so I, I started working towards that direction. What I realized over time is that the, you know, the, the hard, hard work in marketing, being able to attribute your marketing investments to sales, for example, is very analytical work. It takes a tremendous amount of, of analysis, and, and so it's very cerebral. It's not just building a creative point-of-sale piece and being done with it. And, and I found that marketing really starts with, with market research. 
you know, long before you're advertising, you're doing research to make sure you're building the right thing, the right solution. And so I find the whole field of marketing really interesting and it's very broad and it's fun to work with people who are very analytical. It's funner to work with people who are very creative. It's very rewarding and a lot of high energy. And so about uh, 10 or 12 years ago, I moved into a group that had the trade shows and our uh, executive briefing centers. And so from that, through various reorganizations, I took on the events group and I built or introduced Sprint's first experiential marketing organization. And I realized that while they, they may sound like, you know, disparate functions and groups, whether it's sports marketing or an event or a briefing in a briefing center with a customer or intercepting somebody in the mall, that hands-on experiential is the common thread through all of that. And I kind of settled in on experiential marketing because I, I think if you do it right, you can really help people learn and, and you can give them a fun experience and you can help them make better buying decisions, whether it's a business or an individual. And it's kind of fun to see grown people play Pong and, you know, in a business suit and laugh and smile and have a good time and learn something uh, while they're doing it. So you mentioned that one of the things that's very important to your approach to marketing is the research aspect. How does that carry over to experiential marketing and really making sure that decisions, initiatives, overall strategy is backed by research and data? Yeah, so like in our industry, on the consumer side in particular, knowing how people shop for cell phone service. It's an interesting market to study, and you have to study it a lot. There are a lot of market segments out there, customer segments out there, and they have different buying behaviors. And so understanding how they buy and then building interactions and activations that reflect that in the best way possible for them takes a tremendous amount of pre-work before you just show up at a mall or show up at a park, you know, with your experiential initiatives. And the same is true of business customers. And, and one of the things that's evolving and has been evolving for the past several years in, in terms of selling telecom solutions to large businesses is that it used to be the CTO and the CIO who would come to our briefing centers or to a trade show. And they would, you know, they're well-educated. They have an RFP. They typically know how to have that conversation about telephone networks, for example. Now what we're seeing are people coming in from the companies and they might come from marketing or from fleet management. They might be in advertising. And so we have had to adopt to a different influencer or a different decision maker when they come and interact with us at a trade show or in our briefing centers. And so call it research or call it really good preparation and studying the customer. It's really important. The other thing in our briefing centers is when, you know, we have a large Fortune, Fortune 500 company coming in. We spend a fair amount of time researching the company and their solutions and their challenges. We want to know more about what's going on with that company and what keeps them up at night than maybe they do. We want to anticipate what their problems could be, their, their challenges. We want to anticipate what their challenges are going to be so that we can present the best solution possible for them. I think that's just so essential that it's that attendee first mentality, that customer first mentality, and really putting that front and center. And I know that's come up in describing some of the other elements of your approach as well. During your, your time at Sprint, and, and maybe even before then, what's been a point of uh, inflection where you really decided to take things in a different uh, tack? That's a good question. An inflection, I can think of a couple, both in terms of you know exhibiting, management style. But in terms of exhibiting, I remember we had a 
trade show schedule of 60 or so large uh, events. And I picked up a trade magazine and the headline was Apple pulls out of Macworld. And it was their developer conference. And I thought, Apple's pulling out of Macworld. And I read the article and Apple's always ahead of their time, right? They, they're ahead of their time. They always know what they're doing. And I had this epiphany. And so I reached out to all of my internal clients who I was, you know, helping with the trade show. And, and I did all the logistics work at the booth there and, and that kind of stuff. And I said, these are very expensive to do. I want you to create some kind of measure, like an ROI measure on this event. And if you can't prove it in, then we're going to reconsider whether we do it or not. We canceled half the shows right there. And, you know, we thought, look, this is not trending the way we thought. And customers are not going to trade shows to learn about our company anymore. And that's where we shifted investment into our briefing center program. And not only did we shift investment, we shifted resources too. We brought in higher caliber people to work in the briefing centers, people who oftentimes had a sales or engineering background so that they could go kind of face-to-face with our customers. And I realized at that point that when you do that, everything has to be customized, highly personalized and highly customized. And it takes, you know, for every day of a briefing, you're probably spending a week in planning uh, to make sure that you have everything properly laid out and the agenda right. And so when your customer comes in and has that collaborative experience, uh, you put your, your best foot forward. So that was, a, that was a seismic shift. And I would say that for other companies who have briefing centers, they've, they've done similar things where they've backed off of big exhibits and trade shows and, and they're investing more in environments that they can control. And, you know, be that a, a multi-client seminar that's invitation only or a CIO summit or a briefing center. And it's becoming, you know, strategically more and more important and you're, you know, I, I'm starting to see my peers, you know, we're going from managers and then I started seeing directors and now VPs going to these conferences because it's becoming more strategic to the companies. So a few more questions for you. One of which is if you could go back and give yourself a piece of advice earlier in your career, what would it be? Advice that I'd give myself earlier in my career. You know, I, I did not think I was going to end up in a big Fortune 500 company. I never saw myself as that corporate bureaucrat. And I resisted it several times. But I, it turned out I really loved the company and the people and, and the values of the company. And it wasn't until, you know, I was with the company maybe 15 years that I, I decided to allow myself to be more creative and allow myself to take some risks. And up to that point, I was, I was used to being delegated to, receiving direction. And, you know, as I rose up through the ranks, so to speak, I had this point at which it's like, I don't want to look back at this after I retire and have a memory of myself as being this shrinking violet in the corner. I want to take risks. I want to build something. I want to build multiple things. I want to create energy in the company. And so the current position I've had for a while has allowed me to do that. And I still love it every day. I find, I find something new and exciting every day. I take inspiration and and the folks who work for me and the ideas that they come up with. And we embrace them. We try things. And it, it can be, you know, almost like everything's an experiment. And I just wish I would have done that earlier. That's an equally relevant piece of advice for, for some of our listeners and for others who might be earlier in their careers. That said, if you could give someone who is just starting their career in marketing or business uh, another piece of advice, what would that be? I think if somebody is starting into marketing... 
I would want them to see the broadest possible spectrum of marketing and understand that it starts with, you know, good marketing initiatives start with market research. They start with understanding what the market needs before the market knows what it needs. So many people, when they get into marketing, they want to jump right into advertising or right into the message. And, and that's fine. But everybody in marketing has to have an appreciation for the entire spectrum. You know, it can be a long time. It can be 18 months to two years from a concept through research, then alpha trials and beta trials, focus groups. All that hard work happens before a product hits the market. And I think having that appreciation, and actually, if I were to design a career for somebody, I would do rotations in those various areas so that they, they had empathy for their peers who are upstream and downstream. No, it seems like that's a problem that's maybe all too common just with people who are maybe fresh out of their studies or maybe just entering the workforce and uh, they hear about a career like marketing and want to jump right into the, just the creative side of it. <laughs> so definitely, I mean, it sounds like that this is something that is just central to your outlook on marketing, this preparation this research and really thinking about the broader context and the experience of the customer, the audience again. So we've talked a lot about what John does during his day-to-day -day work. When you're off the clock, uh, what are some ways that you like to just sort of relax, refresh, and also get inspired? Well, when I'm off the clock, and you know, it's th this idea of at five o'clock you're done, you're not. Sure. And that's okay. Obviously, we don't want to have time for family and, and recharging and things like that. I think if I were reincarnated, I'd probably come back as a carpenter, a furniture maker. <laughs> and uh, I love building with wood. And I love the process of, you know, it, could take, it can take me a couple of years to think about the project I want to build. And then, you know, take inspiration from the pros who build or other things that I, I want to create. And then I design and then I start working. It's, to me, very meditative. I'm typically by myself with my tools, and it helps me recharge. And there's something about building something tangible that's very, very rewarding. And so that's kind of my downtime, re-energize, and especially if it's a gift. And most of the stuff I build are, are gifts for people, and hopefully they like it. But <laughs> oftentimes it's a, it's a special gift or or someone will ask me to make them something. And, you know, there's a lot of, there's a lot of joy in, in giving something permanent to somebody who, who will cherish it, hopefully. So what are some examples of pieces that you've made in the past? I've made a lot of tables. I kind of like the, you know, the, the mission style, arts and crafts style, kind of blocky stuff pegged together. And so I, I've made several coffee tables, end tables. I made a bookcase headboard for my wife. And we love that. And, you know, various projects here and there. I've made quite a few presentation boxes and, and gift boxes and things like that. Fantastic. The only thing I can't do is turn wood. So you'll never see anything with curves on it for me. Okay. Just straight, angular. Right. For sure. <laughs> That's very impressive. And I, I could totally relate in terms of just wanting, especially when so much of our work is on a computer screen. Right. Just doing something tactile. Yeah. And, and taking a raw piece of wood. Where, where you actually have somebody cut the tree down and then you, you dry the wood in a kiln and then you plane the wood and, and you end up with a finished piece is very gratifying. It's more gratifying than going to the lumber store and buying finished pieces and just assembling. Oh, wow. So you're involved with the full life cycle of the wood. Yeah. Great. 
Okay, so my, my final question for you is, you know, what's something that people don't talk about enough when it comes to experiential and event marketing? I think the, the thing that people don't talk about enough is true attribution of the investment. And in marketing, so many people will focus on measures like brand impressions, which are important, but they don't necessarily ring the cash register, right? And so we've got to find other ways to measure attribution or change in, in disposition of the guest or the person that you're talking to. My favorite one is to measure net promoter score. And it's something that can be reliably done. You know, you can, you can measure a segment, a population. Uh, you can intercept people after an engagement and measure their disposition. Uh, but it's something that I find curious in a lot of business cases or funding appeals that, that I see or proposals is that they don't allocate any money towards researching whether or not the activation was a success or not. It's like an afterthought or they don't care. But I, I think that that, you know, generally speaking in our industry, is that we don't have enough people saying, how are we going to prove this is a good idea? How are we going to prove this activation actually was a success? Yeah, uh, I couldn't agree more. I mean, it's something that we know that events are traditionally a bit of a black box and it's hard to pull data from it, but that doesn't mean you shouldn't try. Right. And you shouldn't try to, to find some sort of metric, some sort of way of getting that data. Yeah, we do a lot of surveying. And, and if you do it properly and, and make it easy and not make the customer work to do it, I find that they're willing to provide you know, honest, genuine feedback uh, if you do it properly. The idea that you just, no, we, we had 9,000 impressions. 9,000 impressions. Right. Something, right? Yeah. <laughs> All right, so uh, one question I like to ask uh, often, John, is who are some other people in the industry who you think are really doing a great job? This can be uh, experiential marketing, this can be exhibiting across the board. Well, a friend of mine named Steve Randazzo just published a book called Brand Experiences, and it kind of delves into the motivation, the psychology of why experiential works, and he, he offers some tremendous insights, and the book just came out. I'm sure you can find it on Amazon, and it's insights like that that inspire me. And when it comes to the exhibiting space, I understand that there are some folks that stand out as well. Oh, yeah. We've been working with a company called Freshwater who does the most creative exhibits, most engaging exhibits, the kind of exhibits that don't look like anything like the other exhibits in the hall. And they're fun, they're playful, they're warm, they have lots of energy, and you're just drawn to them. And then once you get there, the, the experiences go deep. And it's just a wonderful to work with creative people like the folks at Freshwater who aren't just shipping out great big containers of trade show towers and furnishings and then using it for the next show and the next show and the next show and having that custom creative element is really inspiring. Great. Well, John, uh, thanks so much for taking the time to stop by today. It's been really, really great to chat with you and learn more about your approach and your experiences. My pleasure. I appreciate the conversation. Thank you. Great big thank you to John for joining us today. Uh, I just want to share that as of recording this, we are about to hit 1,000 downloads of the in-person podcast. Thank you so much for listening and helping us spread the word. And in case you haven't already done so, you can help us out even more by leaving a glowing review in iTunes. 
If you have any feedback or suggestions or are looking for some more Fortnite tips, please drop us a line at in-person at bisbo.com. If there's someone you'd like to see featured on the show, you can let us know by using the guest submission form at inpersonpodcast.com. Until next time, I'm Brandon Raffleson, and this has been In Person.